so today's topic is going to be on Sangha and that I um, I'm kind of planning on and hoping that this video will be of enormous value because it's got a particular point that most people in the West don't understand. So when we're talking about Sangha, we're talking about a collection or a group of friends and the group of friends. Um, they protect each other, including protecting each other from themselves. And that uh, the, the monks interact with each other, that in fact, in some cases where a monk has done some wrongdoing, most specifically, um, if he has been gossiping in public about another monk and gets caught at it, that it's a it's a very, very big deal that I remember that um, uh, I'll give you the first example of, of several. This happened in about 2005 when uh, we were doing some Dhamma work on the Internet, uh, doing Yahoo groups and things like this. And this young uh, man ordained um, a Westerner under my tutelage at um, <clears throat> what Greensboro. And it, it seems that he was harboring unskillful thoughts about rebirth and magic and that kind of thing. And so when we then had an additional young man to become a monk, they colluded with each other about what they believed was true. And this is quite reminiscent of what happened in the time of uh, Ahsok when uh, people communicate among themselves. Now, there's a whole lot of detail that's going on that I'm just going to miss, uh, miss out on here. But to point out that when this uh, newly ordained monk went on the Internet to uh, to talk down about me. That one of the people on the group noticed that the email address, the sending address from this was my own IP address. Which meant that it had to have come from our router that was in the building, so that really, really isolated it. And this guy felt like he had been cornered and caught. And so he actually confessed, I mean, because he's a monk and all. What that that actually ensued a thing that wound up being a great big ceremony where he had to re uh, memorize a whole lot of Pali in order to do the ceremony in Pali of asking for forgiveness for uh, doing malicious gossip. This was a major lesson for me, even though I was on the recipient end of it in the sense that uh, at that time, <laughs> to be honest, I was so chagrined at what this guy was doing that I really didn't in my heart accept his uh, um, uh, confession and, and asking for forgiveness in, in this ceremony because I didn't think that it was doing, he done it genuinely, that it wasn't genuine enough for me, but that was still my opinion at the time. Uh, I should have now upon reflection, I should have given him not only full forgiveness, but a medium, my best friend immediately, which I could have done. So I missed that opportunity. 
but it's also reminiscent of things that happened at Watstow and Moak. That, in fact, now that I reflect upon how important this was for Maha Samsak to have done this ceremony, I'm glad that I didn't have to do that same kind of ceremony at Watstow and Moak when I got caught out. But I did get visited by about 20 monks. To where in this ceremony, everybody who could come, that was uh, actually quite a number of people that were there. Most of them were lay people, but this was an amazing, a major point uh, that kind of got out. That it should have stayed inside, but it was actually a layman who had ratted on him anyway. Uh, so. Uh, the, the point that I'm making here is, is that the Sangha takes care of its own and wrongdoing is to be uh, dealt with, investigated with, and, and, and have the issue solved, while at the same time, it's not for public consumption. But the, 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 uh, um, the monks do, let us say, police themselves. They police their own. And this is what we actually mean by Sangha that's actually self-regulating because the whole point of the Sangha is Dukkha, Dukkha, Naroda, where, let us say, in an ordinary organization like Lions Club or police fraternity or anything like that, their motivations are not for the ending of suffering. Their motivations are otherwise, like how much money I can make or uh, uh, how many People can be hurt and get away with it, this kind of stuff. But within the Sangha, the whole concept is Dukkha, Dukkha, Naroda. Let's help each member of our organization come out of their stuff. And so this was really amazing teachings that I received as one of the most important teachings, I think, just by being in the Sangha was this lesson about that we Number one, take care of our own. And number two, we do not uh, talk down or uh, engage in malicious gossip, especially in the kind of malicious gossip that would be considered backstabbing. All right. So um, now the question is, is how much of a Sangha do we have yet? Do we consider anyone who has been a, a student or has called me on the internet, would we consider the, that person in Sangha? That's, that's an important question because some people would say, yes, I would be in the Sangha and some would say, no, I'm not in your Sangha, especially if, if uh, the Sangha requires uh, openness and truth within the group. Um, so this is actually an issue that's come up and that the way that I wanted to handle it originally was, oh, well, these guys, they, they want to be in the Sangha, but when it comes time to do something about it, maybe the best thing to do is for me personally, just to forget about the whole thing, because that's the easy way out. I mean, if these guys are out there trashing me, that's okay, no problem. But then um, Kishan asked me a question that was almost like a slap in the face when I realized what was going on. And the question that he asked was, what would the Buddha do? 
It wasn't a, a similar point into what would Jesus do, because we don't know what Jesus would do. But but in fact, it's quite well documented what the Buddha would do. And so that's why I would like to introduce or this this part. This is an introduction to a group of six suttas about what would the Buddha do in conflicts and how would he go about resolving those conflicts? All right. So there's a group of six suttas that I would like to give to you, and you can uh, take these down or just remember them or whatever like that. But we're going to actually do the gambit. We're going to do sutta number 12, number 38, number 22, number 48, number 36, and number 61, all out of the Majjhima Nikaya. Uh, wait, what? wait, one more, one more time. 12, 38, 22, what? 48, 36, excuse me, um, 86 and 61. Most specifically, number 12 is the major lion's roar. Number 38 is about uh, uh, Sati, son of a fisherman. In fact, the name of the sutta is uh, Mahatanha Babanga uh, Sutta. Number 22 is the simile of the snake. And uh, uh, number 48 is the Kazambian. And, 90, and 86 is the Angulimala Sutta. And 61 is advice to Rahula, his son. So let's start with that first one, number 12. There is the story about his name is Sunakato, uh, Lekapaputa. Now, we don't know what the Lekavaputa means other than it's the son of, but normally these things have a, a, a system. And when we talk about the other suttas, we'll uh, go back and reference his sutta uh, or this, this guy's name. Yes. You got it, Christopher. Okay, so um, this number 12. What happened is, is that Sariputta is out going on alms round, gathering up food, and he uh, runs across a bhikkhu who has disrobed and is going around the village complaining about the Buddha, saying that he has no supernatural powers, that all he teaches is dukkha in the end of dukkha, but he's pretty good at that because people can practice and get that, but he's got nothing special, so I'm out of here. And when the, uh, uh, the Buddha heard this, the first thing that he said was, oh, uh, Sakyakato actually is praising me when he intends to blame me. But there's also that point of view that in this sutta's example of someone who wants to have supernatural powers is not really interested in the real teachings of the Buddha. And this goes all the way back to the time of the Buddha, that this guy has left because the Buddha's got no magical power. There's nothing else for the Buddha to say because this guy already knows what the Buddha is teaching. And so there's no convincing him. 
that he really does want to have the magical powers. I see that very commonly in the West. In fact, most of the people who don't call are looking for magic. And occasionally people who do call, they don't like what I have to say because they're looking for magic. And I have to kind of accept that because that's what happened with the Buddha, the same thing. But what I can understand is, is that when they criticize me for not talking about magical powers and rebirth and all of that, the answer is, is, yeah, thank you. That's a compliment. I don't talk about that kind of stuff. Do we talk about Dukkha and Dukkha Naroda? Okay, so this, uh, the next sutta is number 38. These are chosen in order. This is about Sati, son of a fisherman. And what he is talking about is, is that consciousness is the same consciousness that goes here and there experiencing the results of bad and good prior actions. All right, which goes against Buddha's teaching of the no self. Now, uh, this gives then the whole sutta that the Buddha gives about fire and that no fire can burn without a fuel. But the idea that consciousness moves from place to place and from time to time and from life to life doesn't have any substantial backing. It's got no fuel for that kind of fire. That real consciousness is dependently arising. We have eye consciousness depending upon the fact that we've got our eyes open and looking. We have ear consciousness because we've got our ears open and sounds receive it and we're listening. Now, when we're asleep, we're not listening to anything much. And therefore, there is no ear consciousness. But if a great big noise happens, that it penetrates through that, then in fact, we do wake up. And that waking up is to have ear consciousness. We heard something. Okay. So consciousness is de dependently arising. This is one of the most important suttas because this is where it goes into the deep explanation of the entire process. But the thing about Sati is, is that in the commentaries, they say that he actually quit the Sangha. That he did want to keep his point of view and he eventually left. But there's something else about this, and that is the way that it all happened. Which is the point of the talk and that the way that it happened was is that when a group of monks heard Sati giving this wrong information, they themselves worked with him to try to get him to understand. And when he wouldn't give it up, they they went and told the Buddha and the Buddha asked uh, them to go back to him and invite him to come and talk to the Buddha. And so he came and he talked while there the entire group of, of local monks had all gathered together. This is the point that we're, we're getting at where the Buddha then confronted this guy with his wrong views um, and in fact said that he had not a spark of wisdom, that he uh, is like an idiot. Uh, uh, the, the, the Pali is, is right there and, and very clear about it. Not a scrap of wisdom or not a shred of wisdom uh, and with that, Sati's shoulders drooped and he became sad and dejected. And so he probably wasn't listening to what the Buddha had to say, but the other monks got a great lesson out of it at Sati's expense. 
So that similar thing happens now in the next sutta, number 22. And that is, is when uh, Teresa has the view that what are obstructions are not really obstructions. What the Buddha says are obstructions are not really obstructions. Now, the question is, what does actually the word here that we're using in English language that Bhikkhu Bodhi has translated as obstructions, what, what are obstructions? One of the ways we can look at it is to say that hindrances in the mind, unwholesome thoughts, are obstructions. And so um, Atharasa would say then that it's okay for me to continue to having unwholesome thoughts in the mind because that's not going to prevent me from gaining value in the path. But we could also say the word obstructions has to do with one's behavior, one's uh, actions, where we go, and that kind of stuff, because the, the Buddhist monks have a lot of limits on them that way, too. And so, uh, <clears throat> either way, the Buddha says that this is the way that we can become free from dukkha. And uh, this guy, a monk, who remains a monk and understands what the Buddha says. So now at the level, first the first two monks, one quit and he's gone. The other one left. This guy is getting criticized in the same way that the Buddha criticized Sati in the sense of saying, you've got not a scrap of wisdom, not a shred of wisdom, that you're a dunce, an ignoramus. That kind of language was what uh, the, the Buddha uh, called him. And then he explained what um, basically this sutta now is a, is a great exposition on self and no self according to the five aggregates. But this is also the sutta where the Buddha says that I only teach one thing, and that is dukkha, dukkha naroda. That's all we're teaching. Anything that's going to obstruct the mind is going to be keeping that dukkha there or starting dukkha, and it's going to be an obstruction to being in a state of sukha. Okay, so the next uh, sutta is about the Kasambians, and this was uh, an offense that they were doing. They were actually arguing and backstabbing and uh, uh, quarreling, and most specifically, uh, a small group of them were going around spreading malicious rumors. You could go so far as to say that this particular group of monks had an NBC, an ABC, a Fox News, an MSNBC, on staff, you know, gossip mongers are just out spreading the gossip. And so uh, this is where the Buddha was talking uh, uh, to them and talked to them about the fact that these kind of behaviors and actions are obstructions for the path. And at the end of the sutta, all of them understood what the Buddha was there for. And that he explained all of this to them, and they understood that they've got to start treating each other better. That this was that whole concept of the Sangha are, are friends within each other. You can't just be friends uh, in name alone and just kind of let that monk be over there. And while we're uh, uh, talking about him, I can trash all the things that I want to say about him because he's not really my friend anyway. 
But in this case, no, we want to actually be friends with those that are doing the wrongdoing, including those that are backbiting, giving verbal daggers and all of that kind of stuff, because they can be reformed. To where the guys that are really stuck into magical beliefs, not so easy because they've got really deep investments in it. But uh, the Kosambians actually understood that they needed to start operating nobly. And so they did. The next sutta is about the Angumali Sutta, where in fact, uh, this guy was a desperado. The story behind Angulimala in sutta number 86 uh, the background story is, is that he was a Brahmin priest among other Brahmin priests, and he fell in love with one of the daughters of the head priest of the entire area. And the head priest did not want this guy to have his daughter. He had other plans. And so he gave him an impossible task to do. And the guy decided that he was going to do that task because he wanted that girl that bad. And what he had to do was he had to bring the uh, the finger off of the right hand, the, the small pinky baby finger off of 1,000 people. He had to kill them to get that finger. And so he took each of the fingers and carried them around by putting them on a necklace. This is what the word angulimala means. Anguli is actually the word for angle or digit that we have. That's the word finger in the Pali. Mala, you already know that word is a necklace. Okay, so it's finger necklace dude is out there. And it seems that he's gotten quite a number of them. In fact, some of the story, you know, serendipity, y'all, that he's already got 999 of them and he only needs one more. And he sees the Buddha off in the distance. And off he goes after the Buddha. The also the story is, is that the Buddha actually sought this guy out. So he could become visible to him. And the story goes is that uh, uh, Angulimala could not catch up with the Buddha for some reason or another. Maybe he was hiding in a valley or in a, uh, behind a tree or rocks or whatever like that. While this guy was in hot pursuit, but it, it turned up cold. And so he yelled out to the Buddha, stop, monk, stop. And the answer to that was the Buddha says, I have stopped, you stop too. Now, if there's any magic in there, it was the force and the power of the Buddha's voice. You stop what you're doing. And he did. He woke up. And we don't really know, I don't think it even mentions what happened to the, to the necklace. But Angulimala came back and, and started living with the monks. And so the monks accepted him and he started living the, uh, the life of the monk correctly. So uh, the, there's two ends of that story. One of the ends is, is that finally King Pasanati with the army comes marching through looking for Angulimala because he's the most wanted. I mean, sort of the local FBI shows up, except that it's the king himself. And the king asked uh, the Buddha, have you seen this guy who we are looking for? And the Buddha turns around and looks straight at Angulimala and then turns back to the king and says, do you see who you are looking for here? 
which gave the king the message that the Buddha will handle this. You don't have to do any more. Everything is good. Everything is cooking. Well, that's because he already had an old relationship with King Pasanati. In fact, this is uh, in one some ways, this sutta is more about the king than it is about Angulimala. Because not only did Dangulimala get away with it, the king allowed the Buddha to let him get away with it all. So the end of the sutta, though, is when Angulimala is going out into a neighborhood for getting Bendabad and they recognize him. <laughs> Went into the wrong place at the wrong time for Bendabad. And he comes back with his robe broken, his robe torn. He's battered and bruised and bloody, and everybody gets a big kick out of that. And the Buddha says, better now than later. <laughs> that you got what you got coming to you. And the, But the point is, is that now Angulimala can handle that just fine. Yep, got it coming to me. <laughs> All right, and so the last item on the list is Rahula. Rahula was actually the Buddha's son. He started with the Buddha when he was seven years old, because after the Buddha became enlightened, um, he had gone back home to visit his family and they already knew everything. Everybody was really happy and friendly with him, except for his ex-wife. But she was, I mean, she was a princess. She was well taken care of, no problems at all. But she was angry when he came back. And so she told her son go get your inheritance from your father. So she was thinking about worldly inheritances, and he had rescinded his inheritance, you know, by not being the king and all of that kind of stuff. And so she was trying to stick a knife in and dig it in. But the Buddha got that correctly, because he says, oh, yes, here is my heritage. Here is a robe. Here is a bowl. Come follow me. <laughs> And so a little while later during the training, uh, Rahula, his new son, uh, the name of his, the new name of his son, Rahula actually means uh, one of the word for fetters or a bondage or uh, something that the Buddha's got. To, it's, a, it's a responsibility, basically, is what it means for the Buddha. So Rahula is his responsibility, the little kid. So the little boy goes out uh, at the wrong time of day. And goes into a shop and is looking around. And one of the other monks note, notes this and comes back and reports that, hey, your kid's out there in the wilderness uh, uh, doing stuff. And so when Rahula came back, the Buddha asked him about it and the, and the boy denied it. He lied to his dad. Don't lie to a Buddha. <laughs> and so uh, this was at, at about lunchtime or whatever, and um, the Buddha was actually in the process of cleaning his bowl, or maybe he waited for Rahula to come back so that he could clean the bowl then. But, the, but what he says was, is that someone who tells a deliberate lie is not worth the leftovers in a monk's bowl, which were leftovers from the, from the first place. And then he dumps the bowl out, and then he starts to clean it out with water. And then he says that a one who lies is not even worth the dishwater. And then he turns the bowl upside down and leaves it empty. And he says one who is worthy, uh, uh, who, one who is lying is not worthy of even the space within the bowl. So 
this is um, six places uh, where we have, let us say, a march. I chose them in this order so that we could see that in the very beginning of it was um, a lost cause. Mm -hmm. The next one was uh, kind of lost also, but he was still there, but it was still a learning experience and there was a lot of monks involved. The next one was also uh, with a lot of monks involved, but it did not have a lost cause. The guy uh, actually got that um, hindrances are in fact obstructions are uh, a hindrance to the path. So in each case, the Buddha is doing something active. He takes uh, and turns it into a learning experience in number 12 for Sariputta because they were alone. But the rest of it is all with a whole group of monks. That uh, we kind of do it in the sense in the West that we send the kid to the principal's office and in the principal's office, everything is done. Uh, your your student body at a school would probably be a whole lot more, uh, let us say, morally based if there was a, a whole student body uh, convening in the auditorium simply to point out this one student's bullying behavior. And if we did that kind of stuff, if we made a, a big point of it in public, the morality would be a lot higher in the West. And this is one of the reasons why each one of us want to have privacy. We want to have secrecy because we want to be able to do bad deeds, wrong deeds, and get away with it. We don't want it, everything that we do be seen in public. So one of the things that we can say then is, is that we want to be able to take the covers off of our life because we don't have anything to hide anymore. There's no reason to hide anything. But this is what one of the lessons that I learned big time in the song is, is that we've got nothing to hide here. Everybody sees everything. <laughs> and um, that leaves us then with the question of, well, how do we handle it when we have a similar situation today? How are we going to handle malicious gossip within our group of friends? Does anybody have any suggestions based upon the fact that this is what the Buddha did? In other words, should we walk away from people who are trashing or should we try to communicate with them, to work with them? Or another way that we could ask it is, is that are each one of you uh, who are watching this video or listening to it, are you willing to get engaged, to put some skin in the game, to um, to co to communicate with someone, to invite them to uh, to look at something in a new way? Or are you willing, like me, to just take a hike, just walk away from it? Not my problem. The answer to that has to do with what do we think about this? Is this Sangha or not? Is this guy worthy of being my friend or not? And if he's worthy of being my friend, then that gives me a responsibility to have to do something. 
So, uh, Parker, what do you think? Um, I don't have a dis- definite answer, but I think one distinction that would be worthy to point out is that um, that there is uh, less commitment inherently to the nature of the online um, just sending in a call, right? It's not a whole um, lifestyle change in that sense. So um, the um, the actions that you would take um, as um, like a friend of someone in the sangha that is less committed would likely be less committed because you wouldn't expect that other person on the receiving end to engage with it in that sense. Mm-hmm. Um, Possibly. Right, exactly. Hello, Robert. We're talking about something you're already kind hey, of with. Uh, but hey, you guys, can uh, uh, watch this video later and and catch up with with where we're going with this. Um, uh, oh, so, Parker, the last thirteen minutes. Yeah. Oh, okay. So, oh. Parker, you are absolutely right. This situation that we have been seeing with all of these suttas were people who lived with the Buddha. They lived together. There was a community. It was like, uh, how big is your sangha? Is your sangha only big enough for the for your house? Or is the uh, like, for instance, at Wat and Mok, there were 400 monks there. <laughs> And so not everyone's dirty laundry gets the whole treatment for the whole group. That, in fact, uh, when I got confronted with my uh, malicious gossip, (laughs) there was only about 15 or 20 monks involved with it. But it was certainly enough that that it gave me the point of view that, hey, I'm just not going to be out there trashing other monks. You just don't do that. Uh, So your but your question is correct, because not only do we live together, let us say that there's not even the situation to where we have an active group where people come to meet each other in a real place in the same room once a week. And spend hours together like that, or maybe a a weekend retreat, something like, uh, um, let us say, uh, the reserves to where you, uh, Army Reserve or Navy Reserve, you put in uh, one weekend a month and then two uh, weeks a year. That's enough during that time to develop those kinds of communication grounds so that if you have um, uh, one Army officer who sees another Army officer that they're out in civilian life doing something, he may, in fact, want to take some intervention. And one of the ways that he could break it as an intervention is wait for the weekend where the entire group of army people there are are again, and then bring it up in public. But that's not part of our culture. The distinction to make there is that um, during the Buddha's time, the interaction was, um, you could say, passive, or it came about because of the lifestyle, where... um, these calls are more active where we actively call each other to go outside the lifestyle unless there was something consistently scheduled which this sangha mm-hmm. um for example on the fridays or something is more more of like a passive thing okay if that makes sense you're exactly right now here's one of the things that we can look at with that and that is is that if we are going to start a western sangha that's going to be really a functioning sangha, then we're going to have to learn 
to go past those boundaries so that we can actually have real Sangha on the internet. Because that's a major opportunity for us to do that. Um, or, I have a comment, by the way. Yes, um, go ahead, Robert. Great, thank you. So, you know, in addition to what Parker was saying, just kind of building off of that, so uh, when you have an in-person sangha, you will therefore have more in-person trust. Uh, mm-hmm. Because if you're in-person, you get to know someone, you get to understand their habits, their mannerisms, mm-hmm. all, of, all of these unconscious things that go on. And this is the big challenge with the Internet and Internet relationships is you don't get the full trust experience. So therefore, because there isn't the same trust that you have in the sangha, there's also not necessarily the, the same commitment to call someone out. Um, if that trust existed, like what you have in a monastic setting, then it's much easier to deal with, and the Buddha likes what's easy, right? So, <laughs> mm-hmm. so, so there okay. you go. Um, I understand yeah. it. So you're actually just re- re-establishing the same issue, and that is, are we willing to do what it needs to be done in order to establish an online sangha, a real sangha? Or are we going to just throw our hands in the air saying, oh, well, it's not good enough or um, uh, now is not the time that that we need um, uh, to be, uh, let us say, in place, uh, face to face in in reality, that we can't develop that kind of friendship on the Internet. And here's the reason that I'm say, stating it that way is because that's exactly what Achan Po has challenged me to do is let's go on the Internet and spread the super mundane Dhamma. Well, the super mundane Dhamma is Sangha. <laughs> you cannot <laughs> teach the super mundane Dhamma without talking about friendship. And you can't just talk about friendship without actually doing it. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> And so I did not realize until just this moment what a massive job Achan Po has actually assigned. That is not just telling a few people, oh, not to, no self, go, fi- go have fun, <laughs> <laughs> go enjoy yourself. But there's more to it than that. That in fact, all of us are living in a society where we're supposed to take care of the society. We've got jobs to do. We've got boats to cast. We've got uh, 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 bridges to rebuild and all of that kind of stuff. Well, we already have that built in. The only thing that we can't do is point out each other's wrongdoing. An example of that is in Congress, that the Democrats can't really say what the Republicans are doing because the Republicans will just point back and say, what you're doing exactly the same thing. The rod is under there. They can stand on top on their boxes and yell at each other, but they can't really tell the truth about the real rod underneath. That's interesting. That's a good point. Um, This can be just a short aside, but um, sort of the connection that I put together was there with Rahula, where the Buddha saying that um, liars have no value. Um, like they don't deserve any food. Um, one could look at that in the sense of um, this might be too much of a stretch, but um, there's the idea of the 
law of explosion or when w- once someone um, contradicts themselves once, uh, nothing is true. Um, the, the point you're getting at with um, the Congress is neither of them have anything to stand on because they both um, commit wrongdoing or whatever. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Um, and and I think there's even a term for that. It's called whataboutism. Yes, yes. Oh, I robbed a bank? Well, what about Mr. Joe over there who robbed even a bigger bank? You know, and so I exactly. think okay that exactly I write so. because he robbed a bigger one. You know, that's the, the what about isms in there. Uh, but that's only because it's defensive. That in fact, in every suit to hear, in every one of them, not one of them was anyone actually defiant to the Buddha. This guy mm-hmm. snuck away in the in the first suit to number 12. In all other cases, the people surrendered to him. Yes. And when he said that they had not a spark of wisdom, that really disappointed two different monks in two different suttas. And the Kasambians, they got the point when he lectured to them. And also Angulimala. Now, that's a pretty spectacular uh, turnaround. A lot of, uh, let us say, interesting factors that are associated with that. Um, so then the question comes uh, back down to the original question uh, that you asked, Parker, and that is, is that what physical realities do we have to consider in order to create a Sangha? Is the internet enough or is a meditation group once a week where people go to the same university classroom and have a meditation class there, do those people have the chance of making the Sangha? And I would say yes, if the people in charge of it have that as an intention. But most Westerners don't even have that intention. Their intention is to go and get whatever I can out of the meditation and leave. They don't go. They go for the meditation, but then they don't stay for the friends. Yes. And so that's that's basically then the question, is the Internet a strong enough medium for us to actually be friends with each other down to the level of bringing out our dirty laundry and washing it in public. Not in public in the sense of um, uh, (laughs) how to say it uh, in the public square. uh, For all to say, but rather as public within the what or within the organization so that we know each other. Chris, what do you have to say on this topic? Uh, I don't have much to say on this topic because I don't have any good answers yet. I don't know. I'm thinking, thinking about it. Now. All right. Uh, well, you keep doing that. Yes, this is a topic to mull over, isn't it? I mean, this is so fascinating. That's why I decided to go ahead and bring it up rather than keeping all of this to myself. That's yeah, yeah. a good topic. I have another, um, I, I have another thought. So. You know, I think another thing about the medium of the Internet is that everything is transparent and very easily to communicate all the time. 
So if you were going to bring something up, quote-unquote, in public in the Sangha of old, it couldn't really go that far, right? Like someone could write a letter and they could send it far away, but it's secondhand. With the Internet, everything can be screenshotted, posted on Reddit or wherever, you know, and it's a dangerous place to, uh, you know, write things and be public with anything within any group. Ah, that group, seems exactly right. In yeah. fact, that's one of the big issues is, is that a bunch of stuff has gotten onto Reddit. That in fact, it's the malicious gossip that's wound up on Reddit. Mm-hmm. Right. But the solving of the issue is either going to be in private in the sense that we all forget all about it, or uh, it's going to be kept private in the sense that it's not for Reddit public consumption, but it's within, let us say, the saga that we have working with Skype. So that people right. who know each other already, and you know that I invite people to to know each other, to make friends with each other. Right. Uh, so, Jeff. Do you have any thoughts, any remarks? Well, I don't I don't think it's a, an either or situation where it's, you know, the song is, is purely on the Internet or it's it's uh, in a physical location, because I think as the as the Internet based song grows, there's naturally going to be more people in proximity to each other. who are going to meet each other and and from that that will grow as well. And, you know, I know I understand what you're saying about like you're in the West. People go for the meditation, but they don't stay for the friendship. I think I think uh, with your teaching, you really emphasize the friendship aspect. So those who are involved in this type of Sangha are of a different, maybe of a sort of a different, different flavor. Yes, that's exactly right. That's what we're trying to do is to give it a completely different flavor than what we have in the West. We're having we're trying to make this thing really sweet, really delicious. <laughs> and what I'm actually talking about in the sense of let's pile let's pile on some sugar. Let's go figure out what we can do that we can um uh soften some of the hard feelings. Mm-hmm. Reestablish think, the relationships. I think a part of it, you know, the nature of the internet is you have a lot of trolls, and there's gonna, there's always gonna be a lot of drive-by shootings. You know, people are gonna right. throw stuff out and then take off, and you'll never hear from them again because okay. they don't have any skin in the game. Exactly. And I think that's a, that's the nature of it, and you're never gonna get, you're never gonna fix that. No, that's, I'm not even addressing that. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about someone who has deep, deep skin in the game. Okay, I understand. Okay, like more than 50 videos with one guy. <laughs> okay. Okay, someone who had taken on an assignment to do something and then decided to destroy it and then trash the group of people making it everybody else's fault because he destroyed something. I see. Okay. Okay. And so it's like you're referring to an individual. Right. (laughs) For instance, Robert and Parker and many others know the names of the people that I'm talking about. Okay. 
but it's not for public consumption, and I intend to put this video out, and so I'm not naming any names at all. There's no reason to name any names, but this, but I want to correct that point. This is not about trolls. Okay. Unless we're talking about trolls that live under our bridge. <laughs> nice. No, this is this is deep within the Sangha. This is, in fact, the whole point of the uh, the word Sangha decessa. You can you can see the word decessa in the sense of decease or breaking or tearing apart. And the Sangha decessa is when um, someone who is in the Sangha is trying to establish their point of view rather than keeping the Dhamma the way that it is. In other words, they say, well, he can teach the Dhamma, but he has a black heart. He is of no moral value. He is a degenerate. And so don't listen to anything that he has to say. You know, that kind of thing would be. Um, uh, and it and especially comes from someone who already knows the teachings and knows the individual and then saying things that are uh, let us say, for those who have, uh, understand the situation, is obviously a, a direct lie. So not only is it malicious gossip that has to do with harming and preventing others from being able to uh, gain benefit from the Dhamma, but it's also a direct lie, which makes it all the more humorous. I mean, that's, that's to me, I mean, it's like a, a really silly joke. <laughs> and then I can just laugh and, and walk off from it. But I also know that it has detrimental, harmful influences from both omission and commission, in the sense that if this job had been done, it would be marvelous for many people's benefit. And if it does ever get done, it will be great. In fact, what we're talking about is the Sangha Collective or the Sangha Foundation. We were originally designing it to be a Sangha. And before the thing got off of the ground, it became a sign of decession instead. With divisions and breaks and this guy's bad and this guy's no good and that kind of thing. And so it, it broke down our uh, organization has broken down the way that Congress has broken down. And the question is, are we going to try to put this thing back together again or are we just going to walk off? Well, the, the, one of the issues I've noticed with open things is, you know, where everybody's free to do whatever. I mean, in theory, that's great, but when it comes to reality, I've noticed most of those things fall apart or somebody runs off with something. Or um, I remember um, in uh, the early 2000s, there was a guy who came up with a system of healing for people or whatever that I guess was pretty successful. All kinds of doctors and psychologists started using it. And uh, he basically said, you know, anybody can do it. You know, I'm not going to be charging or anything like that. What happened is, is people took it and they started charging and using his name and everything else. And it ended up becoming a huge disaster. <laughs> so, I mean, you know, sometimes even when you have the best of intentions on things like that, you know, People that don't have the right intentions can take it down a path, you know, that that's not good for people, you know. Okay, so here's a question. Are those people salvageable or not? Especially if it could have happened like this. 
that the first time that one charlatan had done that, if the group of people who were practicing that particular method had confronted him on that and brought him into the fold, then the next charlatan would have not been able to get so established. And in fact, the whole organization may have, in fact, been salvageable. But it wasn't because nobody cured the leak. There was no um, little Dutch boy to stick his finger in the hole in the dam. Well, that's that's one of the big issues that I have with a lot of things now, because there's no social repercussions for things anymore. You know, people complain, like even with like the Catholic Church, um, there's really no consequences for anything. You know, you can tell somebody you're excommunicated and they're like, OK, that's whatever. <laughs> if there's no actual social consequence for anything anymore, then the social consequences of things don't matter. Mm-hmm. So, you know, uh, you know, right. and, and there's an easy escapes there. Then you know it's that that's the old you know, you're talking about con men or whatever. The whole thing is is the country's huge. So when this town's no good anymore, I just move to the next town. That has been reduced quite a bit with the internet, but you know people can still hide or whatever. So um, I mean, well, Google though is kind of hard to hide if somebody's out there true. looking. <laughs> sure. Yeah, I mean, this is probably not the you know, the Buddhist way or whatever, but my thing would be to eliminate those people, you know, <laughs> you know that, that would be my answer to that, you know, that they're cut off. I mean, I think if people get cut off from things and they realize there's a consequence, then, you know, there's less of that happening. But I don't well, know if that's the way to go. In all of these sutras that we've just spoken about, not once did the Buddha cut anybody off. That, in fact, the only occasion was is that one guy had already cut himself off. Mm-hmm. But the, um, uh, the, the point is, how to say it like this. As one who is noble-minded would rather go through the humiliation of being caught and exposed for his wrongdoing so that he can get over that and not do that anymore for the rest of his life versus continuing to do that over and over and over and over again, it's seemingly mm-hmm. getting away with it to where, in fact, it really does mess up his relationships and he doesn't even understand why. So in that regard, this is, by the way, part of the path is is the willingness to take criticism. Yes, I'd say that's um, part of the noble-mindedness. I mentioned this to you before, but the quote um, from Mark Twain is, if you tell the truth, you don't have to remember. Mm-hmm. Right, you don't have to remember the lies that you've to- been to- telling. So the, um, but the point that I'm making in, in this regard is, is that uh, it has something to do with how far along the spiritual path people are as to whether they will accept criticism or not. Mm-hmm. That in most of the cases here, that even though there was wrongdoing, everyone except uh, the first one uh, accepted it. So to number 38, and we don't even know, that's just what the commentaries say, that he, that he eventually left the sutta. Uh, the the um, the sangha, 
but everyone else took the Buddha's harsh criticism. But is that because of who's giving the criticism? Because that's normally how it is in life. You know, I, yes. I can take criticism from a particular person, but another person giving me criticism, maybe not so much. It depends. Yeah. Well, there in a and way, it depends where it's coming safety. from too. Yes, it does. In that regard, safety in numbers um, is affected. So if um, five or six or eight or ten people. Uh, email or go to visit someone and open a topic with him. He's going to hear that. But if one person or two people, never mind who they are, brings up the topic, he's probably going to say no or give some excuses. He may do that for the first or second or the third email, but after four or five emails from four or five different people addressing the uh, the situation in their own way, then it's quite possible that he will in fact, begin to hear the criticism in a useful way, in a wholesome way. Mm-hmm. That's the question then, is, is that the, uh, how much is doing it? So we've got several questions here to, uh, to, to think about, and it would be good if people would add comments to this video. Uh, hey. Well, Harold, how, how you doing? We're right in the middle of uh, zero. a deep topic here. Hey, uh, Welcome. Hey, Here is Parker and Christopher and, and Jeff. Hey, Good to see you. Got, you got a beautiful smile. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. So much. <laughs> So where we are is we're discussing what it is to be Sangha in the sense of can we establish a Sangha online? Can we do the kinds of things within the Sangha that make it a Sangha, including the cohesion that's required and also of the confrontation of wrongdoing so that we can gain deeper friendships together? And whether or not the individual that we're confronting is capable of hearing the criticism or not. Okay. And so it's kind of a complex issue but it's worthy of our talking because we're really going, this is very, very deep Buddhism right here, is how do we handle a confrontation with a friend? Now, I'd like to actually take a side and talk about it uh, culturally because both the West and the Buddha have the quality of confrontation within a conflict to where in Thailand, they do conflict avoidance. So we either have conflict resolution or we have conflict avoidance. In Thailand, the way to do it is the conflict avoidance, which is the one that Christopher was mentioning, and that is, let's just take a hike. We can just avoid this. It's not an issue at all, which is actually an even a third way of looking at it. There is conflict resolution, conflict avoidance, and uh, conflict, never mind. It is not really a conflict at all. There was really no conflict. It, this is just human behavior. That's what the internet does, that people are going to be ordinary people, and that's that. People are going to tell lies. People are going to malicious gossip. People are going to backstab. People. I mean, this is the internet, you know. <laughs> and you don't have to be labeled a troll. It can be somebody that you know can be out there backstabbing and, and, uh, and whatnot. That's what we saw at uh, two of the watch that I'm talking about, as well as um, what was happening within those suttas that we were uh, discussing. Uh, 
uh, with the Kasambians, backstabbing, um, malicious gossip, telling lies. These are the kind of things that will destroy a Sangha easily, slowly, quietly. We don't need a big event like a murder or a robbery or an explosion or anything like that. Just trash talk. Just regular trash talk. And so uh, the question then is, is, do we confront one another with our trash talk? Or uh, if we do, then how do we do it? An example would be uh, someone saying, oh, well, I've heard that this and this and this happened because someone was using um, what they call sock puppets, that he was using sock puppets, right? Well, on Reddit, everybody uses sock puppets. I imagine all of us use sock puppets if we're on Reddit. I wouldn't go on Reddit without a sock puppet. Then, in fact, that's the whole point of it, that everybody uses sock puppets so that they can troll and trash and give their opinions in harsh ways and whatnot. If people were required to give their actual name, then nobody would be on Reddit. Which is exactly what's happened to Facebook, that a lot of people won't use Facebook because the requirement is that you have to give your actual name on Facebook. So uh, when we're confronting someone about talking about, well, he's using sock puppets, we can ask, well, what's the name of the sock puppets? How do you know who that sock puppet is? What evidence do you have for who that sock puppet is? rather than saying, oh, he uses sock puppets and therefore he's a bad person. Mm-hmm. So there's many different ways that we can handle that. The kind of questions would, would be to uh, to get somebody to think about what they're saying and why they were saying it. And do they actually really mean that? Because it's actually quite possible that this stuff, we just get into a bad mood and start trashing somebody for no reason at all. And we come back later and we want to delete that post that we put out. We've changed our mind that we're not all of that vicious after all. (laughs) And so there's every possibility that someone who is steeped in the Dhamma and knows the Dhamma would be um, open to hearing that they should be, uh, let us say, uh, reminded that malicious gossip is dangerous, it's destructive, it's malicious, and that it's harmful, and it is harmful to perhaps a whole lot of people, but not harmful to the guy that you were trying to harm. (laughs) (laughs) But there is collateral damage done. Like me, I didn't even have to pick myself up and dust myself off after all of that trash talk. I said, mm, oh, look at that. <laughs> he missed me. <laughs> yes. Um, but the damage is still out there. And the damage is also within the mind of the people who were doing the malicious gossip. And I am very grateful for the lessons that I learned about stopping malicious gossip. To not do that, to don't trash talk other people. And if there's anything that the the four or five of us on uh, this group here can get out of this, it's how dangerous it is 
to go around trash talking other people. That we could tell facts, but we don't have to. Uh, therefore, uh, do a therefore in the sense of uh, he did this, he did that. Therefore, he is a bad person. Therefore, he is immoral. Therefore, he is low class. All right. So we have to learn to not put those therefores in that we can tell the truth. We can tell the facts. This is exactly what it is, period. But uh, it's not wise to then, because of that, use that as an example, then to trash talk someone. Okay, and an example of that would be all oh, this well-known meditation teacher charges money for his retreats. Therefore, he is a low class, no good piece of crap, and you should never do a retreat with him. In fact, that's not the right thing to say. All you can say is he charges money for it, but I hope you, you get great benefit out of that retreat. If you go and pay him for it, may you get great benefit from it. Mm -hmm. So there's the, this is the whole point is, is that we can say the truth or we can tell the truth about what's happening, but we don't have to there uh, then do the backstabbing about it. And this is an important lesson that I hope that we can all learn, because if we don't, we won't have a Sangha. There won't be any possibility of having a Sangha unless we're willing to uh, listen to our own wrongdoing and uh, congratulate the Sangha for being wise enough to confront me with my own wrongdoing. I am really so grateful. The day that those showed, that, that group of monks showed up at my cootie was a dark day for me. But I am so glad that it happened. Mm -hmm. That I want to share that with you, that that was a profound uh, learning experience for me. And that I would think that if we just ignore the situation and just walk off in our own separate ways, none of us will learn anything from this. But yes, if we um, all get involved and get something done, uh, communicate with our friends, get some dialogue going so that he's got four, five, six, eight, ten emails that he has to deal with, uh, that that may, uh, let us say, give him pause to think. Mm -hmm. So, Rose, what do you think about what you've heard so far? We haven't heard from you yet because you just joined. Do you understand what we're talking about here? Yes, 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 yes. About the gossip. I, oh my God, I'm sorry. Yeah, about the, the gossip, the harmful gossiping. Mm -hmm. And well, like, yeah, I've, I've had my own my own experience with that. And I think it's been enough for me. Like, I don't like to trash talk. I learned that. It's better if if I talk about the facts, not about the person, like not judging the person, but like I still can't unjudge the the facts, but I think it's a great progress for me, but it's it's okay. kinda like like that what I what I learn and what I if I understand well. Well I think that I understand what you're saying, uh, that yes, this can be a learning experience. 
for us all. Uh, this is actually, as far as I know, one of the most important lessons there is to learn in one's life, is to learn to be honest, to be open, uh, to not gossip, and also how to deal with gossip, because we're all going to have derogatory things said about us. Mm -hmm. That just happens. I mean, kids do it, and we keep doing it. Name calling, I guess, would be the word for it. <laughs> and and uh, so we need to deal with it on both sides of the coin. We need to deal with it in the sense of how do I handle being called names? The answer to that is be Teflon. It can't touch me. He missed that arrow. You know, the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune just whizz right by. <laughs> they don't touch me. <laughs> And then the other side of it is that how can we now prevent ourselves from gossiping about others? Because that's, in fact, uh, we have to really watch what we're saying because it's just, I mean, we're in the habit of it. It's so easy just to start trashing people. Yes. I mean, just, just mention a group of people and I'll find some way to trash them really easy. You know, you can, I can trash Muslims, I can trash Jews, I can trash blacks, I can trash whites, I can trash politicians, I can trash doctors. I can. Yeah. One point to be made would be about, um, maybe to cement the point we made earlier about uh, the interactions on a day-to-day -day basis that maybe aren't the um, Sangha Nisesa type, um, mm -hmm. but um, that's important building the trust like was talked about earlier. And you talk about um, how at Suwan Mok, for example, Achan Po approached you when you first went in, um, extremely welcoming, I've been expecting you, um, and then continued with um, offering food um, and just being an overall friend. So that would be part of, um, um, you could say a formality or something that people would, um, uh, each person in the Sangha would um, provide to each other. And that's something that would build that trust for then when someone does something that is, um, you could say, unwholesome, that the group is willing to um, have a conversation with them. Mm -hmm. So um, ideas as to how to um, build that friendship um, would probably be uh, uh, beneficial or what we would look for. Okay. Well, I do much appreciate each one's opinion and, and value, partly to make sure that you understand the situation in general, um, not exactly the way that I understand it, because I've got other information as well as other confirmation biases and whatnot. Um, Jeff, do you have any more to add? You're muted, Jeff. You're muted. Can you unmute? Yeah, there sorry, sorry. Yeah. Um, I'm thinking about. You know, like it's it can be subtle at times, like one person's truth telling can be another person's trash talking. 
You know what I mean? Like, let's say, yes, let's say that's true. Absolutely. Let, let's let's say when we're talking about uh, certain aspects of the Dhamma and opinions regarding that. So, like every teacher, and I'm not criticizing this at all, but every teacher will say, well, you know, this is this is the uh, true teaching of of the Buddha. Or, you know, if if you do it this particular way, this is this is not what the Buddha taught. And and you can have scholars from all different directions that will all disagree with each other on the same topic. So how, how do we negotiate this when it comes to these more subtle elements of of saying, well, this isn't the teaching of the Buddha. That is the teaching of the Buddha. And, it, and there's no there's no meaning to be disrespectful of another teacher, of what they've been able to do, their accomplishments and so on. But still, some people can take that as, as an offense. But maybe that's just their spiritual, lack of spiritual growth. I understand exactly what you're saying. And um, that's... We can start with the issue about the truth in the sense that there is truth and then there is brutal truth. And that um, the the way that we uh, want to look at the truth is uh, basically how well it's received. And sometimes that needs to have some experimentation. Sometimes we don't know. Sometimes we make a mistake the first try that, and then it's so bad, so screwed up, there's no place to go after the first try. Or we can try later at a, in a different situation or a softer way. Uh, but let us say this way, uh, the Buddha's sandwich is not just one thing that there is truth but truth is like the bread you don't eat a slam sandwich often that you want a sandwich that's got some goodies in it got some lettuce and tomato and maybe a main like a, a veggie burger or a hamburger or an egg or a piece of ham and cheese or whatever like that that's the whole meat of it okay so the truth is like the bread that holds things together, but friendship is the meal. And so if we're going to make an error, the error should be in the direction of friendship over truth. Perhaps even to the point of establishing friendship without even in the first email bringing up the truth, but rather just establishing the friendship. It's, it, it, that's that sort of uh, makes me think of you and Daniel Ingram's dialogues. I mean, you're very, you have very different uh, sort of interpretation attitude, but there's a genuine regard for each other. You can yes, see it. Absolutely. Yes, I have genuine regard for Dan. That in fact, I can I have regard for him because he's done exactly the same things that I've done. He just spent a little bit longer doing it than I did. It took him 20 years to get through Mahasi. It only took me a couple of years. But he made it. Congratulations, Dan. <laughs> and also that same, same thing would be with Gawanka. You'll never hear me trash Gawanka in any way, shape, or form other than what he teaches, which is correct, valuable, wholesome, and quite useful for many people. 
or actually everyone, is still not the entire teachings of the Buddha. But what he does teach is correct. And that's the better way of looking at all of these various teachers is, in a way, um, say it like this. The calculus professor who is world famous for teaching calculus, he's got several books on the shelf that he has published. He's well known, Professor Emeritus and all of that kind of stuff. And here he is complaining about a first grade teacher, the way that she's teaching one, two, three. OK, that makes no sense at all. Why? Because that professor emeritus would not have been able to do calculus if he had not had a teacher to teach him the one, two, threes. So if we have teachers that are out there teaching the one, two, threes of Buddhism, those who are in teaching graduate school need to appreciate the one, two, threes of Buddhism. That's the why that I treat with, with Goenka. Yeah, he had marvelous stuff to teach. It wasn't everything that I needed, but wow, I got a great leg up because I did get something from him. That you can't inspect, you can't expect to get everything from just one teacher. Mm-hmm. But in fact, I think that I was really lucky to have had a number of teachers before I got to Bhikkhu Buddha Dasa, because when I got to Bhikkhu Buddha Dasa, I was ready for Bhikkhu Buddha Dasa. I know mm-hmm. some Westerners that never did get ready for Bhikkhu Buddha Dasa after spending a year or two or three or four with him. So uh, we we have to look at it from the fact that there is a a value in great diversity. But we all engage in wrongdoing. And I would have engaged in wrongdoing and continued to engage in wrongdoing and probably never learned the lesson of uh, uh, backbiting and malicious gossip if I hadn't been confronted with it. And I was confronted with it twice. Once when all the monks came to visit me and once when I had to sit in the ceremony while this guy gave me a bowl of flowers and chanted for 30 minutes. (laughs) All because of malicious gossip. And so that's how important malicious gossip and right speech is to the Sangha. In fact, I would like to, as as one point, there is one of the books that Bhikkhu Buddha Dasa uh, is known as is the book that is called No Religion, where he's talking about uh, he starts talking about water, in the sense that we see all kinds of water, and we think of it as differently. For instance, we don't think of margaritas and sewage together, but yet they're both just water with a few extra things in it, except that water is really not even water because it's just hydrogen and oxygen. Except that hydrogen is not really hydrogen, it's just uh, a a quark and a proton and an electron. (laughs) And what is a quark? Well, we're not quite sure yet, but we'll figure it out someday. And when we do, we'll probably find out to break that one apart too. (laughs) So, and and that, yeah, it's still going, exactly. So, um, the, the place that we can can come to with all of this is, is that if we're going to bring unity, if we're going to bring cohesion, 
with friendship. We have to address the issue of not letting each other get away with it, that we can confront it. And in fact, every one of you have probably had me confront you directly with something that you've said. But as soon as you said, yeah, bang, I got you. <laughs> yes, and thank you. Thank you for that. Happily, joyfully. Yeah. Yes, so, absolutely. And so this is kind of what we're talking about, is, is that once you get hit and you recognize the wake up, you are grateful. I am really grateful for that 15 or so monks to come visit me that day. I think I learned more on that day than I had in five years of studying Buddhism, which was basically I could use it down instead of Dukkha Dukkha Naroda or don't worry, be happy. I can use the word keep your brain shut. <laughs> <laughs> or at least keep your mouth shut. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, this has been a really interesting talk, and I um, hope that each one of you can uh, put some feedback, think about how we're going to um, do this situation. Uh, anybody volunteering who want to uh, help uh, uh, contact a friend, Etc. like that, we can give some background information. In fact, the one to contact is Keyshawn because he was the one who <laughs> got slugged. Yes, Robert. So just one comment, and I'm curious to hear your thoughts, a comment slash question. So, you know, so I imagine if you're having a conversation like that with a good friend, and let's say it's not, you know, our partner or whatever, and let's say it's not nearly at the level where you'd confront in, in an intense public way, but it's just a, say a small annoyance that recurs in some sense. So you feel the need to say something. Mm -hmm. I feel like the right way to approach that is to first tell them how much you appreciate them mm -hmm. and be very wholesome and positive and then say, Oh, and could you please do this a little bit differently? I'd really appreciate it. And I appreciate you so much for these other things. And in business, this famous consulting firm, McKinsey, they call it the compliment sandwich, where mm -hmm. there's a compliment, then there's the feedback, the critical feedback, and then there's another compliment. And mm -hmm. I think it's a very intelligent way to ever, you know, give some kind of uh, negative feedback. What do you think, Boast? Did Robert just volunteer to write an email or what? Oh, <laughs> <laughs> good. I've, I've yeah. written one already. Yeah. <laughs> Okay, guys. I very much appreciate this. Does anybody else have anything to say? Parker, are you good? Yeah. How about you, Chris? Yeah, I'm good. Yep. Jeff, do you have yeah. any parting remarks with this? Uh, no, I'm, I'm good. Thank you for the discussion. Excellent. Oh, how about you? Well, not about the matter in hands. Like, no, I'm, it's really clear. Excellent. Excellent, guys. Thank you so much. This has been an enjoyable conversation. I very much appreciate it. Thank you. And one last thing. Friendship is all the Dhamma. If you want to have Dhamma, make some friends. You've got availability right here. There's five of us. Then, in fact, there's more. One thing, by the way, Christopher, that you mentioned, and, and that's something that I should fill you in on, and that was uh, there was a, a week or two where Keyshawn 
and um, Eric and Robert were all Dama dudes together. We've already started I, I remember that exactly that. thing that you were uh, talking about was is that, yes, we can start to have mutual contacts, good friends, et cetera, like that. Yeah, I've hung out with Eric, I think, three or four times now. So um, it's great. You know, it's awesome. I look forward to seeing him again. He's going down south right now. Uh, but when he's back up here, looking forward. Excellent. Yeah. Eric, Eric is one of my star students. <laughs> he just will not stop laughing. <laughs> he's a joyful yeah, guy. Great. <laughs> okay, guys. Well, we'll see you later. Thank you so much. This has been great. This is great. Thank you, guys. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you.